Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the dear Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you today? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tickety boo. Cheers. Excited for our mailbag episode. Excited to close out season seven. This is our seventh mailbag episode. People still are sending in questions as if we have answers, well, right? <laughs> well, I, I think we gave them good reasons for sending in questions this uh, year. So. This year, yeah. I think it's going to be a different breed of question coming through <laughs> this, this year. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. But I'm pleased to say we are not alone, Joshua. We are not alone. We're, we're joined by uh, a guest who's who's increasingly shown her presence, uh, her vocal presence on the podcast, the dear, the wonderful, our very own Jessica Rabbit Lomas. Hey, Jess. Hey there. See how this time I said hello immediately instead of awkwardly just looking at the screen, like, (laughs) because I've remembered this is an audio around here. (laughs) Yes, hello. You got it down. (laughs) And then we've also got Someone who's been a guest on the podcast before, multiple times, yes. uh, and, and now he's joining as a co-host of this, our seventh mailbag episode, Mr. Stephen Howley, Howley, Crowley, Holly, Holly. What an honor. I was hoping that I would get a middle name. Uh, not sure that I'm loving that one. But we can work on it. We well, on it. how about this one? You're going to like this. Uh, Steve Jobs Holly. Oh, see, I like that. Is it the black T-shirt, isn't it? It's the black T-shirt. Yeah. Is what does it <laughs> yeah. uh, I have to, I've never asked you this question, Stephen, and we've had a fair few conversations. In, in places like elementary school, were you ever called Creepy Crawly Holly? Crawley, Holly, no. What happened to you in elementary school? Okay. Or I guess they call I guess they call it primary school back then for you. Yeah, it was it was Scotland. It was the very early 1980s. There was a lot going There's down. A lot of creepy time. crawlies in Scotland, no doubt. <laughs> creepy crawly Holly would have been quite. Um, it would have been quite delicate mm. for the early 80s. But it's, the reason I ask it is it seems such an automatic rhyme for you that I assumed <laughs> young people would have come up with it decades well, ago. I don't know. I don't know what that means in Scotland, but it's it's not a friendly nickname here, I would, I would yeah. imagine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it does rhyme. You can't, like, like in the schoolyard, I was called Jason Basin. Like that was it, like so, because okay. it means nothing and it rhymes. So not a lot of creativity in your primary yeah. school. That's what you're saying. Uh, yeah, we, you at some sort of school for like wannabe beatnik poets. Like this, this didn't happen in my school. People wow. didn't get so rhyming did, names. Did you have a nickname, Jess, in primary school? Mm, I don't actually know. No, I think I just was Jess. One that's just appropriate Jess. to share, of course. Oh, I feel like on this podcast, there's really nothing that's inappropriate to share. That's in the after hours bit, right? That's true. Yeah. Instead of the question, did you have a nickname? I think the question is, what did the bullies call you when you were in school? I think that's that cuts to the core of what we're asking. I I feel like what we're cutting to the core of here is some some 
strange things that happened to Jason in primary school, and he's grasping, <laughs> he's grasping at straws, hoping that other people had a difficult time as well. Yeah, this is therapy, <laughs> just apparently. seeking normalcy, Steve. He went to school for philosophy <laughs> just to figure out why these kids did what they did in primary school. <laughs> yeah. Please this tell me I'm not alone. University of Aberdeen. Tell me I'm not alone. <laughs> by, by my professors. <laughs> Listen. Uh, uh, all right, enough, enough of yeah, this. Yeah, where, yeah. where are we at, Joshua? Well, what are we doing this Where day? we're at is, is we have an absolute pile of emails to go through. And uh, some questions are just simple, straight to the point, and some of them have a bit of preamble. Some of them have more than one question, and by them I mean, you know, emails that have come in. And uh, we had some that came in at our questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com, some that came in at info at singlecastnation.com. I thought I would uh, operate the at onenationunderwhiskey.com mailbag. Mailbox, if you would run the single cast nation one. Does that sound good to you? I, I have got info under control here. And actually, to that point, would you mind if I started proceedings? I was going to say, you know, youth before beauty. So go ahead, please. <laughs> for the, Somehow I will take that. For the sake of the listener, so, I can't speak for you, Jess, but I don't know what these questions are. I, I, have, not, no, I have not done a pre-read. No. Not that no, surprises. Not. That's how they like it. These two, they like to just yeah, these two. throw them out there. Yeah, you got to watch them. Well, and for the record, unless I'm reading the email, I also don't know what is in the context of the email. So, this is this is low prep work around here. But we like to be surprised. We like to take it. And the reason I wanted to start with this missive is because it comes in hot, and I thought I'm going to try that on for size. <laughs> I thought I want to see Straight what that feels the like. Point. I love it. Yeah, I love it. So, so Steve Hawley, start holding on to your seat right now because this is going to get real hot, real fast. I'm excited. So this this comes to us from Ryan Feifel, who did go west. He is in Montana. We have mentioned him before. He is Farm Power Malt, mm-hmm. and and Ryan writes, and, and this speaks to what I was saying earlier in this episode. He leads with. Congrats on selling your business. Well deserved. Not sure this is airworthy, but I wonder your opinion on the name American Single Malt. One concern is that there are many Americas other than the USA. North, Central, South. Mm. Also, it isn't very catchy like Scotch. Before the term gets too far into the zeitgeist, I wonder if a rebrand isn't worthwhile. I hesitate to even write this email as I don't have any better name ideas. I would love to hear the thoughts from the ASM Commission. And he omits the word president, but I am reinserting Mm -hmm. that term. So what say you, Mr. President? Well, Ryan, provocative question to start the podcast here. The mailbag has <laughs> burst wide open. Well, I Coming in I appreciate the thoughtful consideration of mm-hmm. branding. You know, as a branding man myself, you know, it, it mm-hmm. warms my heart that, uh, that Ryan and, and others out there are thinking so much about this. 
I don't think we should change the name. I'll just put that out there right now. Um, <laughs> nine, nine years later uh, or more, I do think we have created a brand in American single malt whiskey and certainly built up some equity in the name and the idea. In terms of the, the opening shot there from Ryan about there are other Americas Certainly there are. Mm -hmm. um, there's mm -hmm. only one country, however, called America. Um, and this is the country at question here. So while Canada certainly is in North America, I don't think American single malt uh, would apply to them. And I don't think folks around the world would see it that way. As for uh, the other suggestion that Scotch is a Scotch. catchy title, <laughs> a catchy name, I think rather than catchy, we're, we're looking for dignified here, American. Do we want to get playful and say Merca or something like that? I don't think so. That's what I was so. going to say. Like, just I know, Joshua, did I steal your Scotch, thunder there? Yeah. You, you did, but you know what? It's yours for the taking, Steve. Yeah. It's yours for well, the I taking. am the president, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you, could pass, your notes, if you could pass your notes to me for approval before you speak, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, again, the highlight here is... A gentleman from Montana putting great thought into this, which is which is a good thing. However, and Ryan, a yeah, no and less. a monster no less. However, mm -hmm. Ryan, I'm going to respectfully disagree that we don't have the right name in place already. There you go. Now I'll leave the floor to you. If if someone here wants to disagree, we could get into some well, verbal fisticuffs. Can we can we take can we take what we've said here? And connect it to an email that we got from Kevin Dunlop, which sort of takes this idea Whoa. and carries it a little further. This what, is like the inception of mailbags here. Oh, this is totally. Does this everybody is nuts. have their spinning top? Christopher right. Nolan's <laughs> Christopher Nolan's listening. <laughs> All right, so get your short-term uh, memory uh, at the ready here. Uh, so this is from Kevin Dunlop, and he says, Hello, JJJ and S., I'm really enjoying the journey of American single malt and being able to watch something new take shape. So I have a question around ASM. Do you think it will eventually be categorized into regions like Scotch? And if so, what would the regions be and which would your and which would be your favorite? Cheers, oh Kevin. Oh, that's that's interesting. I, I'm I'm chomping at the bit to answer that one, but I've I've taken the stage too much already, so I want to let somebody else lead. Well, let me let me throw this in. I really just don't say the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> I I there really is something to be said for the differences from single malt in say Texas through Balcones to VDC in Virginia to the Pacific Northwest with, with Westland, Westward, and Copperworks. They're three very different styles. And I don't know if it's because that is the region they're specific to or just different practices. So, like, as someone who, who works with these distilleries and has for a while and knows all of the players, are they, are they do these distilleries simply have a different approach to making whiskey or does or does their sense of place play a part into what their final product looks like is that a question for me yes 
Well, lots to unfold here. You know, Scotland doesn't have a regulatory demarcation between any of the regions. Those regions emerged um, from marketing departments. Um, obviously, you know, they are a collection of distilleries which are in those specific regions, sure, but it has nothing to do with regulations. So um, that would never happen here either, um, nor should it. There shouldn't be Southwest American single malt, you know, Northeast American single malt. Um, not from a from a definition standpoint or regulatory standpoint. So I think maybe we can all agree on that and I'll move on to answer your real question, which is are different styles emerging? Um, if so, how and why? Um, yeah. I think there's a, there's a healthy debate on whether this is the case or not. Um, I personally believe that there are naturally some regional styles emerging uh, I think that is because of the intent of the distilleries uh, in those regions and some of the influences that those uh, distilleries in certain regions are taking. Um, the obvious ones, Pacific Northwest, right, in heavily influenced by beer culture. So there's roasted yeah. malts, there's beer yeasts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other obvious one is... Um, the American Southwest, where they're doing lots of different types of smoking to the malt, mesquite, for instance, mm. at Whiskey Del mm -hmm. Bac. So I think those things are emerging because those distilleries are interested in pursuing a sense of place in whiskey. I think that on the East Coast uh, or the Eastern Seaboard, I would, I would argue that generally those are more traditional in style. Whether that's because they're closer to Scotland or not, you know, is is anybody's guess. But um, it just seems to be that that's what's happening. Um, you mentioned Texas. Uh, I think Texas is an interesting one because they have certainly tried to lean into the idea of Texas single malt. And I think they're successful in doing that. I don't know that I would say that that is a stylistic distinction, but more of a cultural one. So... Again, we're kind of getting really kind of heady with this stuff and meta, but, yeah, I, but I, th I think the, the reality is in today's day and age, given the global economy for resources, whether that be grain, whether that be equipment, et cetera, you can make any style of whiskey you want anywhere in the world. So I just mentioned a few different regional trends that I'm seeing, but within each of those regions, there are plenty of people bucking those trends. So it's really down to choice of the, of the distiller. And I don't think it's an absolute. And as, you know, as someone that heads up the commission and is, you know, in large part, you know, a mouthpiece for the category, um, I would say absolutely the commission and, you know, the people behind it are, not the ones that should be drawing those lines. If those lines are drawn organically and styles emerge, that's great, but I don't think it's anybody's place to force those lines. Um, will marketing departments in 10 years eventually take over and, <laughs> and, and try and convince everybody that these lines exist? Maybe. But I think it's also a lot different than Scotland in that there's a lot more distilleries to corral here. You know, there's how many distilleries in Scotland? 140-something, right? Total. Yeah. Um, there's already more distilleries in this country, upwards of 250 making single malt. Um, there will be a lot more over the coming years. There's 3,000 distilleries in this country. 
nearly 3000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to wrangle everybody and to kind of put everybody into a box is going to be very difficult. But, but you said something interesting and then you, you went against that. So you started talking about Pacific Northwest and they seem to have a certain style because of beer culture. However, there's other players that buck the trend. And, and then the same would ring true in, in other parts of the U.S. And I would argue that's what's happening in Scotland. You know, on Isla, you had Brooklady and Bunahabin that were bucking the trend of, of having primarily unpeated whiskeys for the majority mm-hmm. of their time. You've got Glenallachie up in Speyside producing some of the most heavily peated whiskeys now for this, you know, for a new product range for theirs. And so I think, I think be it in the U.S. or be it in Scotland, you, you have players that are going to buck the trend, are going to buck this idea of what people thought of traditional regions. What, what the U.S. has that Scotland doesn't have, or vice versa, what Scotland has that the U.S. doesn't have is predetermined regions that have been pushed forth by the Scotch Whiskey Association, by the various brands saying... We are Speyside, we are Isla, we are Highlands, etc. In the U.S., it's also new. It's kind of nebulous, and we have an opportunity to talk about it in a regional way, but you're suggesting, no, let's not do that. Am I understanding that? I'm simply suggesting that, again, in my role as president of the commission, um, I'm not suggesting it's our organizing body's job or even right to draw those lines. If those lines emerge naturally and if that's what the distilling community wants to embrace, I'm certainly fine with that. But I don't want to fabricate it at the at the outset of a mm. growing category for um, for the reasons of whatever, you know, marketing again. Yeah. Um, and I think it's too early to even all align on whether those regional distinctions exist or not. So that's my opinion. I'm curious for you, Jess, where obviously you're sitting on judging panels and, and regionality seems to remain key, but you're also in front of the consumer doing various tastings. Are you finding the regionality is... Kind of, kind of a double-edged sword? Are you finding places where it's useful, less useful? What's your experience like there? Yeah, it definitely, it can work both ways. I think we've done a really great job of training consumers that like, if they see on a label or something that says Campbelltown, then it's going to have these things. If we're saying Isla, it's going to be these things. But like, <laughs> like everything, you can create a whole bunch of definitions and really tie yourself up to these. And then producers start being like, well, why should we only let uh, Isla be the people who produce anything that's got a kind of smokiness to it. Hang on a minute, isn't Highland Park famous for also having a kind of heathery smokiness to it? Well, they're mm. not an Isla, so yeah. why, you know, that's, I mean, that's a region of its own that could be contentious, but they're technically Highland. Some people like to talk about Island categories, even though that's not an official recognised category. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's always just a way for people to kind of, in their minds, tidy up and group stuff together. There's a lot of information in whiskey and 
if you are just trying to tidy up, because when you're talking to somebody in a tasting or you're talking to somebody in a shop, you only really have their attention for a really short period of time. I could mm. very happily talk for several hours at your face about these things. <laughs> you would die of boredom or leave the shop. I mean, there's, you know, we can get, and we do, that's the point of this podcast that we get down and nerdy about it. But it's really, I think, supposed yep. to be a shorthand key. I have to admit, when it comes to America, mm. I had wondered about the idea of, and I think you're right, Steve, to not make it a regulatory um, distinction, but the whole of America is massive compared to Scotland, you know, and we already have these kind of sub um, notional arguments where, well, we're a Highland, but technically it's Speyside because we're nearer to the Spey, but Highland is more our style. Then I think naturally those sort of conversations eventually will happen across the US when you have got such huge diversity between um, different states and then you know like Texas is massive I'm sure eventually when there's mm. a whole bunch more um, malt distilleries in Texas well they're not all going to want to be out turning liquid that's like what Balcones are doing so maybe eventually there yeah. will be an argument and it's interesting that it's coming here to go back to Ryan's original point about what would you name it something different that's really hard because it's such a huge category mm-hmm. I think American Single Malt does a great job of tying it together Although I am adding a separate vote for either USA, USA single malt or maybe land of the free <laughs> single malt. Can we have that? Um, Very I creative. think it doesn't matter as long as it becomes... <laughs> sorry, that's really lazy. I think as long as it becomes something people can identify f- um, the quality and that there is a process that's been championed here. To people this side of the pond, when I bore them senseless talking about American single malt... I think over here, it's such a non-entity. I think people talk about, they just think everything that comes out of the US is a bourbon. And if you're really lucky, some people may know it's a rye and even fewer people have heard of like wheats, you know, wheated bourbons, wheated ryes. Because in Scotland, our conversation traditionally hasn't even really involved a mash bill. When you go to a distillery, that beginning of the process is there's some grain here, we bung it through an excellent Yorkshire mill and then we turn it into this delicious liquid, right? Room two, let's go. (laughs) Whereas there's so much conversation in the US that we can have before we've even set foot into that, you know, the milling, what sort of um, breakdown you're taking out of the the mills at the end. There's a whole bunch of grain conversations there, which there are a few, again, notable exceptions happening here in Scotland, but it's not even a conversation here. So it, it really fascinates me watching this whole other sort of, goings on your side of the pond to get there's a whole bunch of extra things to get yourselves tied up on and we do a great job of tying ourselves up in knots in scotland about uh the bits of the process that we do control before Mm. we start adding different types of when you're talking about pacific northwest the influence of the beer scene you know different types of roasted malts using different yeasts it just doesn't exist in scotland so it's not even a it's not even a conversation i think if it was and we had the uh, regulatory flexibility to do much more in Scotland, I'm absolutely confident we'd be in the same mess here. It's just that we've built quite a square box that we are very strongly inside, whereas you guys are building these structures to tie yourselves to in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One of the things that's been interesting for me is going around places like Holyrood and Port of Leith. And when they talk about their interest in malts and barleys and you know, different processes and different yeasts. I, I always keep saying like, oh, you, you sound like Westland. Yeah, oh, yeah. you sound like insert American distillery here. And it's not about 
do the American distilleries sound like Scotch producers? It's, oh, there's some very interesting cutting-edge Scotch producers who are kind of starting to sound a little American. And and I, I think that's very exciting. I think that's a wonderful direction in which we're heading. So, Yeah, I think uh, just two caveats to my next comment. Um, first, for the listeners, I'm the one that... Uh, complains all the time about the length of these podcasts yet i'm i'm gonna make this one that that much longer so um, i'm just sitting here thinking yeah. the same uh, you thing you were Steve. weren't you jason um and secondly <laughs> speaking of jason i'm gonna steal this before he gets to it but i have some leaves to put on these branches here hey um whoa, whoa, whoa. For those I, listeners at home with their bingo card cross the yeah off. bingo oh my god um <laughs> i think jess makes an excellent point and this is this is to me, the heart of the matter, which is we could start talking about regions and model everything on Scotch whiskey, the way they make it, the way they talk about it, the way they frame it, or we could start a different conversation. You know, Scotch whiskey Mm. has been made for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, and, you know, if, if, if we're not bringing something new to the table and new to the discussion, then really what's the point? And that's, that's what I can, I can tell you that all of the membership of the commission, you know, they all share that same point of view, regardless of the end product and how, you know, stylistically it, it syncs with old world single malt or not. And that's obviously a very subjective thing. I think everybody is excited about the potential for American single malt to open new pathways and explore mm. new ideas in single malt. And if we're just trying to, you know, replicate the same formulas, again, whether in making or talking about the whiskey, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. And mm-hmm. I, I understand it's a natural human urge to try and do things that help organize the conversation. And believe me, more than anyone probably in the world, I understand how difficult it is to talk about American single malt and get people to wrap their heads around it. So I get the urge to, hey, well, let's come up with regions so it's easy to talk about. I get that. But again, Mm -hmm. Jess made the point about scale. I mean, there is, you know, just such a vast difference between Scotland and the United States. You can fit nine Scotlands inside of Texas to give you a sense of how big this country is comparatively. So, um, you know, by that, by that extrapolation, you'd have to have 60 different regions to match the Scotch whiskey regions. So, um, I, I, again, just to reiterate what Jess said, I think that it's about talking to new ideas and new things rather than, you know, 10 tenuous regional lines. Okay. Nice. Okay. I'm on board with that. Do you guys hear that sound? That sounds like an is old... Is that our second question barreling in? That's the fax machine that just went off. <laughs> no way. Hey, I thought I paged it earlier. Yeah, it's... Uh, we got a... Okay, looks like it's done. Let me pull it off the little tray here. We got a, a fax from from Dr. Matt Bishop. Woohoo! Let me Let me show you this really quickly. Oh, wow. Look at that. He's, awesome. he's the best. I love him. Fantastic. That. For the listener, it literally says facts at the top of it. Very impressive. <laughs> so, uh, A star in your homework project. So uh, Matt Bishop says in his facts. So, so first off, he's got an address. Dr. Matt Bishop, House of Fun, 
Bash Street, dirty old town, Scotland. That's that's where Dr. Matt lives. <laughs> His fax number is plus zero zero one eight hundred whiskey. And uh, anyway. Oh, We're all typing uh, that into our fax machines now to see if it works. I, I love the fact that he did this joke for the benefit of three people <laughs> and got a bonus fourth when Steve joined this episode. <laughs> wow. That's attention to detail. It says, telegram message incoming. Stop. Please answer the following question. Stop. In 2024, there will be six Scottish whiskey distilleries reaching the age of 200 years as they were founded in 1824. McAllen, Glenlivet, Milton Duff, Cardew, Balmenich, and Fettercairn. Stop. Wow. To help celebrate the bicentennial birthday, you can pick a cask from just one of the six distilleries to bottle for a single wow. cask nation. Stop. Which distillery would you choose and why? Stop. Signed, Dr. Matt. And it says confidential. But I don't think our answers are confidential, so. Yeah, I think we just blew the confidential part. <laughs> so, so here we go. So we have uh, six distilleries turning 200 this year. McAllen, Glenlivet, Milton Duff, Cardew, Balmenich, and Fettercairn. We each get to choose a cask to bottle for single cask nation what distillery and why and and because we're gentlemen we have to say ladies first ladies first uh what do you what say you jess uh first of all i really appreciate that they address on this personalized facts slash uh, Telegram has a whole bunch of in-jokes that I think may have flown over some of your heads. Uh, the one that I appreciate the most is that it's got Bash Street on it, which is yes. a reference from the Beano, uh, which yep. uh, the Bash Street kids out the Beano. Look at me. I'm older than I look. Okay. Uh, well, I, f- I feel As like... the Beano. <laughs> I feel like the good doctor has thrown in some good old-fashioned red herrings in this list because the obvious answer is we should obviously bottle... Uh, McAllen. But I feel like actually if I gave you the answer I really want to bottle it would be a feta can. I really liked some of the stuff wow. they've been putting out recently. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> Dangerously close to that other place that we don't talk about. Are uh, these things I, on? I, yeah. I just want to make sure that we have the universal translator and I'm yeah. afraid that it may have come through and you said feta can. Can just yeah. I did. Can, yeah, can we just bleep her use of the F word in post? <laughs> just just beep right over the top of that. No, you heard me. You said this is a controversial episode, so here we are. Uh, I've really liked wow. um, a few of their releases recently. I've been in a couple of tastings where there's been feta cans thrown around with mm-hmm. uh, abandon. Uh, I really like their wow. 16 and they do uh, like a kind of occasional release that I, I want to call it Warehouse One. It's definitely a warehouse and then a number. My brain is not working too well today, but um, has also been really delicious. So I think it's a good example of a brand that uh, just needed a bit of love, a bit less caramel and some packaging that's not <laughs> nonsense. Hmm. Uh, I think it's really good. It's great liquid. So I would willingly put that in our very snazzy, lovely new single cast nation bottles. You heard it here first. Okay. Well, I love, 
I love that your most complimentary sentences are followed by just like ultimate takedown sentences. <laughs> so the, their bottle is no longer three foot tall. It's no longer three foot tall. It doesn't. Ah. It doesn't come in a box that is ideal for burying hamsters in. That's genuinely what the sales rep told me when they came out with. Oh, there was like three things. It was like fear. And then two really old ones that were like 30 and 40 years old and they came in this ridiculous, yeah. very yep. tall piano yep. lacquer uh, boxes. Yep. And I asked the sales rep, what on earth do you think people are going to do with these boxes? And he was like, I you could bury a hamster or a small cat in it. <laughs> they were really big bottles. You could put a, a medium big hamster. cat in that. That is a big hamster. Yes. These are Scottish like a horrible hamsters. euphemism. Scottish oh, right. Hamsters. Scottish hamsters. Forgot. Yeah, yeah they're a, um, it's a special breed of their own. So Scamsters. yeah, I, I really, I really liked it, and I didn't didn't anticipate coming here today advocating for Fetican, but here we are. Yeah, it's a brave new yeah, world that... to wrap up the end of the season. Yeah, if if I'm more shocked over the course of this episode, it's going to be hard to believe. Like I make a lapse if I'm more shocked than you advocating for Fetican today. Challenge okay, accepted. Well, said what uh, I said. Jason, what would yours be then? Out of those six. Another easy peasy one, I would say last month when we were in Edinburgh uh, doing a, a, a ton of work with mm. the new corporate HQ, mm -hmm. um, the, the absolute dram I've come away thinking about was nicknamed Warm Reekin Rich, which works for me as it is uh, homage to Robert Burns, and it was Balmenac. Mm -hmm. And I thought, holy moly. I have been sleeping on Balmenach. And as I listened to the list coming from The Good Doctor, I thought for sure Milton Duff would be my answer. But <laughs> no, the, the Balmenach, I continue to think about it. I need to get my hands on a bottle of it or two. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm actively looking for Balmenach uh, on the back of that, that cask bottling by SMWS. So power to them. Easy peasy. Done. Okay. I like that. And it's a worm tub distillery, which is just quite nice. Uh, Careful now. Steve. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I share Jason's uh, newfound love for Belmenic. I think we had two last week um, that were, we did. We did. That were mm. stunners. Um, oh, so I was, yeah. when, I, when I first heard the list, I was tempted to say Belmenic. Um, but it's not going to be Belmenic. Um, I was also tempted to say I was also <laughs> tempted to be on Team Fettercairn simply because we like to say Boba Fettercairn and that's just fun um, and I can imagine the packaging opportunities there if we could get um, George Lucas to let us do something yeah, right. for, for a minimal cost <laughs> um, as long as he can make an action figure out of it we're golden but it's not going to be Fettercairn either. Um, and I'm going to tell you what it is going to be. And I want to make sure that the, uh, the audience, both on my screen here and uh, farther out wide in the world, doesn't think it's because I'm the one that handles all the spreadsheets here. Um, that's not why I am choosing McAllen. Um, I am choosing McAllen because we all have our own whiskey journeys. And early, early on in my journey, when I still had hair, I had actually a wonderful experience at McAllen. I was in London for business, and I said, if I'm going to be all the way over here in London, I'm going to go up to Scotland. So up I went to Speyside, and I happened to just reach out to them and say, can I come by? Um, mm -hmm. 
They did throw me on a tour, uh, but they, they literally pulled me off the tour. And they took me down to the house. <laughs> well, They're like, <laughs> yeah, you're not welcome. No. They, um, a lovely woman, and I wish I, had rem- I wish I remembered her name, but she pulled me off the tour and she said, you know, you're, you've come a long way. I mean, granted, it was like a Wednesday afternoon. So, yeah. But she said, you know, you're, you're a funny American and you've come a long way. <laughs> if you've got the time, um, there's some other things we can show you here. Um, so we jumped off wow. the tour. She took me down to the house and they had a nice little spread of food there. And it was just me and, and this uh, tour guide, or maybe she was the, the tasting room manager. I don't, I don't know. But they ha- if, if you've ever been in the house, they have this big cabinet with all of their vintage whiskeys that they did. Um, mm, and they yeah. said... Uh, they said, you can pick two. Pick your birthday year, which I picked, 1974. And and I don't even remember what the you. second one I picked was. And we just sat down and had a chat and, and sipped these drams. And it was just a really cool experience. So, That's awesome. I, you yep. know, That's I have a, you know, aside from the, the crazy, you know, man with angel wings jumping off cliffside commercials that they've done in the past... I still have a special place in my heart for yep. McAllen, and I always will. So for that reason, I'm picking McAllen. There you go. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to sell it for $120 well, a bottle. Yeah. Under 100 95 Double-digit McAllen. Single cask. Uh, and what's it you, Joshua Hatton? You know, when, when I first read this list... Like you, Jason, I was going straight for the Milton Duff. And and I think back (laughs) early and often to the nine-year-old that we've bottled uh, a few years back. That was good. Right. And and it's a distillery. I always look for the bottles. Like a few years back, we went to Cadden Heads, and I I came back with two bottles of a a 29-year-old they did. Just, you know, excellent price, remarkable liquid. But just this morning, I I was... Strolling through the the interwebs through through an auction site, and I saw um, some old signatory dumpy bottlings, and I was reminded of of Sam Filmus invited me and Ollie and Chanel back to his back to his house and opened up a signatory Cardu. I think it was twenty seven years old and Sherry, one of the old dumpy bottlings. And holy crap, if that wasn't one of the best whiskeys I've ever had in my life. And and it's a style. It's a distillery that I've never really cared too much about, just because you don't see a lot of their bottlings. And anyway, uh, I thought it'd be nice to bottle something that was even close to the quality of that of that old dumpy bottling. And to say we've we've done a, a Cardu, right? We, we've bottled Milton Duff already. Why not bottle another distillery that that we've not worked with before? So Cardu it is. There we go. Yeah. Well. Well, now we know Jess is going to be desperate for us to do Boba Fett Cairn, so. <laughs> What with me being famously into the references to everything Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> oh, come on now, Jess. Get on board. Hop on board the Falcon. I've watched them all. Just don't quiz me on it. We can get through this region in like 12 parsecs if we, but not through this podcast. Sure. We cannot get no, through this no podcast way. in 12 parsecs. Uh, so speaking of, yeah. I, I've queued up right. uh, another another question. Okay. So this one gets into production. 
and uh, and our, our old friend Nick Frangipan uh, really kind of goes to town. Here. I think it's so, Frangipan. Uh, g- that sounds me, like a, a that sounds like a movie title. Frangipan goes to town. <laughs> 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 yeah, Fra- like what does he do next? Frangipan goes to town. Frangipan goes to the circus. <laughs> yeah, that one. There's endless sequels to that one. Yeah. Is found in the basement of the Alamo. So, oh, jeez, Jason, always wow. getting morbid with it. Well done. No, it's Pee Wee. <laughs> no, it's Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, Herman. He was he was riffing on Pee Wee Herman. I'm, I'm afraid to break the news, but anything Pee Wee Herman related is still morbid now. Uh, yeah, he's... you make one mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he's dead. Can't we? Come on. I know, right? Let's remember the good, Steve. Who's bringing this down now? The question. Uh, the question, Jason. Yeah, All right. yeah, go ahead. Nick Frangipan writes, Dear Jay and Jay and Jay, <laughs> thank you so much for answering my previous question about casks, and special thanks to Jason for his pronunciation of my last name. And I can only cross my fingers that I'm doing I, it the same not. way. It's Frangipane. It's Frangipane. You've been Frangipania or something. I Frangipan. don't know what you've been doing. I like Frangipan. He imbued... Oh, gosh, it's still done about me. He imbued it with a certain regality Ooh. in his rich Scottish accent. Oof. Oh, gosh, need a, need a little need a moment for yourself, though, yeah. I know. Now that we've covered casks and I... I'm not going to say what I covered. I'd like to know a little more about the minutia of how stills work. Mm. We always hear a lot about still shape, but very little about the speed at which they run. Ah. And then parenthetical comment, he says, I assume speed means that if uh, if they're run hotter, the distillate passes through more quickly versus if they're run at a lower temperature. Mm. And uh, that is is my understanding. Mm He says, I've been reading Jim McEwen's biography, a beautiful book and well worth the $70 to get a copy in the US. And he talks about how with Port Charlotte and Octomore Spirit, he ran the stills as slowly as possible to get a spirit that he implies is more delicate and fruity. (laughs) He gets a bit poetic rather than giving specific flavour notes. He also indicates that both of these whiskies have a more gentle smokiness than the PPM numbers would imply, the phenolic parts per million, of Mm -hmm. course, which confirms something that whiskey fans have often discussed about Brooklady's peated spirit. He even said that you don't notice smoke at first on the Octomore distillate. It really comes in on the finish. On the other hand, and this is where Jess pricks up her ears. On the other hand, I've heard that Lagavulin fills their stills high and runs them very fast. Mm -hmm. Is this why their 35 ppm punches above its weight? And then he goes on to say, I know the stills are also short and sort of hersey (laughs) and sort of Hershey kiss shaped, Ah. which could also have this effect. I read, he continues, that Kilhoman's distillation takes about three and a half hours, which is much shorter than the six hours that I've read is average. Is that perhaps why their distillate is so smoky? I recently tried a Kilhoman Sauternes finished single cast side by side with an Octomore 12.2, which is Sauternes, 
and the Kilhoman was smokier to my palate. And then he, he closes with a, a couple of questions here. I'm also curious about direct fire stills. Do they run hotter and faster? Or are they more like the slow burn of a charcoal grill? I'd love to hear anything you know about running the stills at different speeds and the effect it has on the style of spirit. Thanks, Nick Frangipan. Slash Frangipan. Slash Frangipanya. Frangipanya. Um, to the floor. I'm very excited to hear who our special guest is to speak to all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, Who's well, our special <laughs> expert guest? Okay, yeah, let's, let's, he's just coming in now. Can you hear him at the door? <laughs> let's let's mention two things. I, re- I really think the the direct fire uh, question should be really separate from everything else. I I really didn't know much about direct firing until somewhat recently. We were talking with someone who was reintroducing direct, talking about the reintroduction of direct fire for Glengarry, and one of the things that they mentioned was the fact that when you switch to direct fire, the range of heat fluctuates yeah. quite a bit more than if you were to heat it, you know, in the more modern sense of doing it. So you, you run into a bit more variability. Well, and your um, ability to control that is drastically reduced. Yeah, to right. The temperature. I think when we talk about some of that um, difficulty of control, obviously, there's a difference between stoking uh, a hearth with coal to keep your your direct flame going, yeah. and there's turning the nozzle to keep. Uh, a gas flame going underneath a still. Mm. The thing for me is anytime I hear direct fire stills, I'm kind of curious what is powering that? You know, I don't think we're going back to the days of, of burning coal in Scottish distilleries, but is it in some instances like turning on the the gas stove where you're getting a reasonably consistent flame going underneath your pot? Uh, have any of you seen that in direct fire uh, still distilleries? I'm trying to think when I was last at Glen Farkless, what the underside of the stills look like. Right. Yeah. I think it's also right. worth thinking of while we're talking about it um, in terms of like home cooking, you know, turning your stove on, your pans that you're using for cooking, well, I don't know about you, but the pans that I'm using for cooking <laughs> are not made of copper. And one of the reasons we use copper um, in distillation is because it's an amazing conductor of heat. So it's not taking as long to heat up as maybe, you know, whatever you're, if you've got cast uh, iron pans or uh, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff happening on your home domestic. We've got a metal which is a great conductor, so it probably does speed up the mm. heat transfer quicker, but with that comes you're closing down your um, kind of control of how much you can mess with it, I would have thought. I've never mm-hmm. had the uh, luxury of controlling how hot a still gets. I'm not sure I want the yeah. luxury of controlling that. I have heard all sorts of <laughs> horror stories about distilleries who have let it run too hot, and basically what happens is the still will implode. It looks like if you've taken a, you know, like those vacuum seal bags, and you, when you watch all yeah. that kind of come crumpling in as it comes in um i've seen a still that looks like that so there obviously there is a vacuum happening in there as you're heating it and you've got to be really careful with that so yeah I, anytime yep. i hear direct fire it just spooks the hell out of me 
because I hear <laughs> all I hear is the word fire, <laughs> right? Fire, fire. <laughs> so I mean, good on you if you can do that and do it well. Um, but it's challenging and it's dangerous. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think uh, I had Joshua. There was. Go on, yes. I was going to say, I had a little chuckle when uh, you started reading out Nick's excellent email uh, because he hit one of my other distillery bingo card ticks, which is the speed of distillation. Uh, and there's yeah. plenty of distilleries. When you go in, they sort of... Um, I always love how when you do a tour at a distillery, they sort of throw around lots of statistics, lots of facts for you to absorb quickly as you move between the rooms of the distillery. And uh, there are several distilleries that like to talk about slow distillation with no further context attached, except that if you hear somebody mention slow distillation, slow distillation is better than fast distillation. Yes. So the only mm-hmm. statistic I can pull out of my head at... Uh, at such short notice, from my Rolodex of distillery knowledge, is that Glengoyne claimed to have the slowest distillation. Now, I know nah. they do five litres a minute, so I don't know if anybody else has any better top trump stats Ooh. coming off, but they claim five litres a minute off their still, which sounds pretty slow to me. I thought I'd heard at Brookladdy three litres per minute. See, here we go. It's like an auction. Yeah. Oh, it's a distill-off. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of distill off, what are what are you doing so, with bottles over yeah, there? Yeah. So you know, just just thinking back to this email, you know, he Nick talked about Octomore twelve point two, which is their distillate in Sautern, versus Kilhoman in Sautern, and he and he found the Kilhoman to be peatier than the Octomore, and so. I happen to have a bottle of Kilhoman Sauterne matured from from 2016. Now I don't have Octomore 12.2, but I have Octomore 4.2, which was the Comus, and and so you've got Kilhoman at 50 ppm, 50 ppm, and Octomore at 167 ppm. And again, that's on the barley. That's not the final mm. product. Um, and there's there's one point that I wanted to to highlight that Nick didn't mention, and, and maybe he doesn't, he doesn't know this, maybe some people don't, is Kilhoman's barley, it comes from Port Ellen Maltings, and it's peated using Isla peat, and the barley that Brooklady uses for their peated whiskeys is not Isla peat, it's Highland peat, so you're going to get Indeed. two very different styles of, of peat going on, and yeah. when, when he talked yeah. about Jim saying... Uh, you know, we, we distill slow to get all of the fruity characteristics from Octomore and Port Charlotte. I was thinking, holy crap, there's fruity elements to this? None of this sounds right. <laughs> and so I so I poured the 4.2, which I have in my left hand, and I poured the Kilhoman Sauterne from 2016 in my right. And I can say with full confidence, the Octomore is so much softer and fruitier and prettier than the Kilhoman. Like the by comparison within this context, that Kilhoman is knocking you over the head with Pete. It it absolutely yep. Yep. is. And yeah, and absolutely speaks to Nick's point. That's excellent. But but I don't know if that is a a result of two different kinds of peat. Uh, if it's a result of the distillation speed, which I thought Kilhoman talked about it them being slower now keep in mind their stills are very very small 
So, you know, how slow can you go in the end compared to a, dis- a distillery that has larger stills? But I know Kilhoman takes higher cuts as well. You know, they, they basically wait five minutes after the heads runs out or, or the, the four shots until they start collecting the hearts. So in theory, they should have lighter, fruitier spirit coming through. But in this comparison, the Octomore is definitely lighter and fruitier than the Kilhoman. Yeah. Is there an age difference? Kilhoman also has that reflux ball. Yeah, no. So the, the 4.2 is five years old, and the Sauterne is, that's a very good question, by the way. Three. Uh, distilled in 2011, bottled in 2016. So they're both five oh, years they're the of same. age. Hmm. Yeah. Because you do, you do lose phenols over time as you're, as yeah. you're maturing. But that's yeah. not the case here. They're both the same age. Yeah. Yeah, so hmm. it's, it really is... Like when you smell the Kilhoman and then go to the Octomore, you wonder where is that peat? There's a delicate earthiness, a mushroominess, but the peat is almost non-existent by comparison. It's funny. I have wondered for a long time, especially when uh, the early days of the peat wars were between Ardbeg and Brookladdy, and uh, Brookladdy were increasingly coming out with you know like higher and more mind-blowing numbers attached to their PPMs. So that's the uh, mm. phenols parts per million uh and i i wonder at what point it is that most average consumers who maybe don't have a highly trained palate stop mm. detecting peat i mean we've you've said there 167 versus kilhoman's 50 let's see the 55 or 35 uh from the port ellen's malting the port ellen maltings i should say uh, at what point does your tongue just go, yeah, there's shitloads of it there. Good luck. Like, I, you know, 167, 300, is it possible to have 500 ppm? You know, like, eventually, it just tastes like a PT whiskey. It, is, I, it always struck me as a weird argument, especially because when Ardberg and Brickladdy were fighting out saying, we've got the PTS whiskies, they were measuring those phenol levels at two totally different points, which mm. to me is a bit of a funny competition to be having. Uh, when you're not really comparing like for like. I mean, I guess, again, that's a brilliant stroke of marketing to be like, well, we've got the peatiest, yeah. and then in small letters underneath saying, but we measure it at a different point. Uh, because obviously you lose some of the phenols during distillation. Yep. So mega peaty barley and going maturation. in is not the same. And then we add maturation, mm-hmm. so we lose some more. I wonder if I've never seen anybody talk about measuring PPM in liquid that's been in a cask. Are you about to, oh, this Josh has got a finger up, which I've, tells I've me got, someone has. I've got one finger up. So uh, so I can think of two distilleries. You had Glen Murray when they released their two-year-old spirit, and they listed that the barley was 40 ppm, and the spirit itself was 14 ppm, or 18 ppm, I should say. Mm. And then uh, most recently, back to my example uh, with the Glenallachy, they have this, this new brand called Mikkel Tor. And the peat that they list is not the peat on the barley, but the spirit peat. Hmm. Oh, cool. They don't even mention the barley peat. So they, they say, hmm. like, three of them have 35 ppm, and one of them is 78 ppm. And that's on the spirit, not on the barley. So I think we're seeing how difficult this is. And from right? my understanding, and maybe I've missed a technological beat in the last couple of years but from what i understand even measuring phenols is an inexact science and very difficult to do so yeah, yeah. to jess's point if they're doing it in different times in different ways 
you know, um, and it's an inexact science to begin with. I mean, we're all just guessing here, guys. Um, and, and I think they are too, uh, to a large extent. Yeah. I've, I've never heard of yeah. anybody putting the measured PPM of the liquid on a bottle. I think that's interesting. But again, it just begs the question for me, how do they get that number and how accurate is it? hard to say and is this a, is this another way of just us adding a category of whiskey like when we were talking about <laughs> yeah. regions this is Let's just another way you can add another yeah you can put another little sub line on your top trumps card about whiskey and I, I, it also goes to show that the overarching theme here is consumers are getting more knowledge given to them from the off like maybe traditionally 10-15 years ago some people were talking about PPM but they were talking about it within the context of they were real whiskey nerds who were trying to compare things like for like. But now, mm. if you're saying, I haven't actually physically put my hands on a bottle of Meikle Tor yet. If you're saying it's already on the packaging, there you go. We're telling people who are browsing shops or, you know, like yeah. looking for stats on a bottle when they pick it up. Just goes to show how much more we're telling and bringing the whiskey consumers in from the beginning, making... Do they, do they need to know all these things? Is, <laughs> is knowledge better? Uh, but making them feel like they are more informed as to what they're drinking. I, I think it's very interesting. I think Ultimately, that is an interesting question in because look at, look at me extending this again and Jason's dying to ask the next question. But it brings up something to me that's a bit of a tangent, which is you've got a lot of interesting... Oh, no. No tangents. You've got a lot of interesting creative people making whiskey in the world right now. And... Um, how much of this is, is a result of those people wanting to catalog and ultimately broadcast all of this nerdiness? Mm. Look, I come from, yeah, you know, sure. I come from Westland, right? We were very focused on transparency. We were very focused on providing as much information as possible. And I os- often ask myself, do people really give a shit about that stuff? Or is it just that we give a shit about it? So are people really walking into a shelf and looking at the PPM in the liquid versus the PPM of the barley and making a, making a purchase decision based on that? Um, of course, the answer is yes, there are some. But how many, exactly. how, many, exactly. how many of us are actually out there? I don't know. It could just be a bunch of people that are in the business talking to themselves. Can, can I ask you a, a question, Steve, about the, the early days in, in Westland? Um, I heard someone talk about mashing and fermenting as flavor creation and distilling mm-hmm. as flavor selection. And so in those earlier days where you're trying to figure out, and it, you know, where your flavors should lie for your five malt mash bill for Westland, did you view it in that way? Do you, would you make adjustments, you, or, or Matt, I guess at the time, make adjustments to how you distill based on how you mashed and how you fermented? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Um, I don't know that... It's, it's an interesting phrase that distillation is the selection of flavors, and that's kind of a cool idea. I, don't, I wonder if that's just cool because it sounds cool or if that's actually what we were doing. <laughs> but I would, I would just say that we would step, you know, stepping back one level, we, we viewed every part of the process as flavor creation, right? So yeah. um, a- absolutely. And and what we learned from each stage as we, as each stage of the process, what we learned, um, of course, informed decisions that we would make, you know, the next time around, um, mm-hmm. like, look, we were trying to be, uh, 
um, we are trying to be consistent in approach and very much trying not to be consistent in final distillate or final whiskey, right? We very much believed mm. that the more variety that we could put through the system, um, the more opportunity we had to create interesting whiskeys, you know, in the blending lab. So, um, you know, obviously from a business standpoint, you get to a, you get to a place where you're, where you're scheduling yourselves and you're trying to make yeah. something, you know, pretty specific on a specific week. Um, and you have choices that you memorialize, um, that are a part of that process, but it's always an exploration and it's always, you know, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss an opportunity. So we, we absolutely saw every stage of the process as an opportunity to create flavor. Um, for sure, hundred okay. percent. And we yeah. lamented, quite frankly, the the prevailing attitude in the in the uh, in the industry. To be honest, is you know a lot of people just ignored mashing altogether. You know, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was not really given much thought, and certainly if it was given any thought, it wasn't talked about after that. Yeah. And I just I I think that we we didn't see any part of the process that way. Yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah. The, nice. the the other part, just really quickly, sorry. The the other part that wasn't mentioned here is not just how you distill, but where you're taking your cuts, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on where you take your cuts is going to indicate are you going to have a heavier spirit or a lighter spirit, right? Etc. And and on top of that, you know what what your um what your condensers are doing. Right, or you you can adjust your condensers yeah. to affect that liquid as well. So it's like and there's a climate the, aspect to that, right? Yeah, because um, yeah. your your system is going to work differently different parts of the year. But again, going back to trying to create you know a palette of flavors from which to paint from, right? Mm. Even when we were making the same thing, right? Same mash bill, you know, same let's say even wood program that 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 mash bill was going into, there were often times when there was a collective choice to say, hey, let's go deeper into the tails for a couple days, right? Because we need that aspect in the warehouse. And this kind of gets back Mm -hmm. to the question at hand about phenols is that's where some of those phenols are, right? So um, you can make that conscious choice if you want something, you know, um, heavier, meatier, peatier, right? You can say, all right, let's go 15 minutes longer than, you know, your nose tells you you should, because that's what our warehouse (laughs) needs. Um, Mm -hmm. so even within making, you know, a lot of distilleries just make the same thing, same mash bills that they're going after the same thing day in, day out. Let's try and make as much of this as possible. Let's try and be as consistent as possible. That's one approach. Another approach is let's create variety. Right. That's kind of a, a Japanese approach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Let's create variety so that we have the ability to even make something consistent because we have the different things to pull from. So maybe that's what's happening just, in this uh, Brooklady slash Octomore um, Kilhoman example is maybe Kilhoman's going deeper into the tails. They're not, though. They're, they're, they're hmm. They're not. They they Interesting. select a very small, high and tight hearts cut. Hmm. I I think it's a it's a comparative thing. It's a contextual thing. It could be differences in the sauterne cast as well that could be 
you know, there could be sulfur in some of those sauterne casts that kind of increase your perception of those phenols. So there could be a, sure. a number of factors, I, I think. Yeah, I, just on that very point, I wanted to maybe point, make a point of clarification here just before we close out Nick's question and go to another. But he says, I read that Kilholman's distillation takes about three and a half hours, which is much shorter than the six hours that I've read as average. Yeah. That three and a half to me sounds like the spirit run. It doesn't sound like the complete distillation. I, I was wondering about that. That is really yeah. short. I mean, I don't, real short. I don't know how yeah. you would run something through a system like that that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. The, so that three and a half number, though, doesn't sound right to any of us, no. right? No. 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 It so sounds I'm, like there's some need some further research there, Nick, to see what the, the three and a half pertains to. I know you will email us uh, once you return to that. So we look forward to hearing back from you. And uh, thanks for your question. Yeah, Next, Joshua. Uh, do you want the, the short and sweet one or one that has a little more depth? Short and sweet? Okay. This one is from, uh, this is from Mike from Travel Bar. Oh, oh good lad. Mike. And, and Mike says, I want to know when Steve is going to take you all fly fishing and will it be filmed? <laughs> oh my God, I literally tried to take these boys fly fishing last week. The look of horror and shock on their face at the idea of standing in a river for six hours was was comical. Um, yeah, Mike, and, I've tried. What, what did you catch? How successful was that, Steve? Oh, wow, wow. Get a real good haul I, on that yeah, really I cold windy brought, day that you were out there. I should have had five coolers with me. You know, it was it was so successful. <laughs> um, Wow, we've learned I will say, something about you this day, Steve. I will say this, Mike. I'm glad that these guys didn't come with me uh, last weekend because it was it was brutal out there. It was quite cold. <laughs> the fishing was not great. <laughs> the wind was, you know, 40 miles an hour. So probably not the best time to get them hooked, if you will. Um, hey! But uh, <laughs> sorry, well, Jess is looking at me with disdain. Um, <laughs> shaking her head. Um yeah, I, Mike, I'll probably try one more time, maybe when they're out west here and it's a nice sunny day and there's, uh, there's a good river we can get to. But if they say no again, I'm giving up. It's not worth, it's not worth the mental energy to try and get these guys on a river. <laughs> Quick, you two vegetarians, Spoiler. come with me and let's go fishing. <laughs> it's catch and release, Joshua. Well, you don't kill it's anything. It's barbless. It's I did have a chat with uh, Joshua not... about the barbs. Uh, and I said yeah. I never fish uh, with barbs on the hook. And Joshua said, hmm, that changes my mind considerably. Maybe I'll do it's it. Actually, <laughs> um, yes, it actually... Yes. Now I know why you didn't catch anything. <laughs> I did let a few He said it with away, an yeah. Australian accent, though. It's like, no shrimps on the barbie. Uh, anyway. I did catch an um, Australian beer can. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a, a question here that, that does have a bit more depth to it. But I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And this is from Tom Judelka, who has written in before. He says, Good, good. Hello, Triple J and Steve. Uh, congratulations to you all. Uh, and the recently. It sounds like the brother we keep in the attic. <laughs> yeah, I, I was told last week that I needed to change my name to something that starts with a J. <laughs> Can we call That's you true. Jeeve? Jeeves? Jeeves. Well, like that. Just ask Jeeves. Uh, <laughs> it certainly fits to the drawing board, Josh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Congratulations to you all on the recently announced acquisition of SCN. Thank you very much, Tom. 
Um, as I read in the press release and listened to both One Nation Under Whiskey and Whiskey Cast, I couldn't help but think of how this really seems like a match made in Whiskey Heaven. Or perhaps on Heaven Hill. I like what he did there. I'm eagerly anticipating the variety of new releases that may be available to Nation members as well as all of the 25-year Ardmores that were promised. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Coming soon. Prior to the acquisition, I thought about asking this question of the original Dream Team, a.k.a. Triple J, uh, but now I'm interested to hear Steve's take as well. So here it goes. This is a multi-part question, so please bear with me. One, if you could be given control of any distillery, currently operational, operational or mothballed what would it be and why okay so let, let's 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 go there and and i that i just want like short a answers i want like what the distillery is and maybe two to three sentences max on why oh my god so so jess why don't we as we've done previously why don't why don't we go ladies first here no, I, I really, I went ladies first last time. I want to hear the <laughs> yeah. brother we keep in the attic. So you're, I am ready so you're to saying hear. Jason goes next. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, ladies first. Jason. <laughs> I, I, I don't see gender, so I'm the perfect person to put in this spot. Um, I, the trouble is we're really going to need the Jeopardy music here because mm-hmm. there's no prep on this at all. What comes... First to mind. The chicken or the egg? Which comes first, Jason? Like, no, the visual the, the, the thing is, right, I don't, I don't lie awake at night wondering or asking myself which distillery I'd like to take control of. Like, it's not a question I've asked myself. What's the podcast like, version like of, the, of, the, of the card on okay. a movie that says so, three months so later? Do you, want, yeah. do, do you want me to read the other aspects of the question to maybe No, help? I want Jason to answer the question. Okay. okay. Come on, we're all... <laughs> We're all ready to roll here. It feels like I'm in front of Congress now, (laughs) in front of the Senate. Senate Judiciary right now. I just want Jason to answer the question. That's it. (laughs) You do have favorite Um, distilleries. Yeah. But but I don't want to run though. So here's the the God's honest fucking truth then. Here you go. Stick this in your pipe and all three of you can smoke it. There's literally not a distillery that I want to take control of. <laughs> I, I think about I think about loving Lechig. I think about loving Glenfarclas. I think about my friends down the road at VDC. I don't want to run any of their operations. Like, what would I bring to the table? What would I do that they don't already do well? Would I love a day to spend on the shoulder of Gordon Bruce at Knock and see how he runs that distillery through a day? Absolutely, that would be a ton of fun. But me take over the reins is okay. Is well, a it, bad, bad okay, idea. Okay, so you you've answered question number one without understanding his follow up, and I think his follow up may or may not. Uh, In my own defense, there was no context presented. Exactly, so and I, I'm I not wanted sure to I didn't understand. I wanted anything. to present context, but right. in a in a. In a section which I've edited out, Steve said, don't give this fucking guy any context. Just have him answer the question. <laughs> so right. once given... So you knew there was context, but you only read the first part. This is, we're having fun, Jason. So once given control... <laughs> yeah, we're having fun. <laughs> once given control of said distillery, 
Would you choose to keep things as is, or would you choose to change something, e.g., wood policy, mash bill, fermentation, fermentation times, etc.? If you are choosing to take control of a mothball distillery, would you choose to make the whiskey the way it was made before it closed, or would you go into a different direction? I'm assuming you would not choose to literally keep it as is, meaning closed. And then finally said, what would your <laughs> signature <closed>. expression <laughs> Oh, I think he would want to keep it closed. He's clearly lazy. He's, he said he, he could manage one day of hard work is what he said, basically. So, yeah, so, so Jason's maybe he volunteering to let you into Dallas Do and then close it right back down again. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep it a visitor center. <laughs> I would like to undo all the hard work that done at poor Ellen and <laughs> return it to being yeah. mothballed. Yeah, so so does that does that follow up? You know, now that you have freedom um, to do things, or you're like let let the experts do what the experts do. My worry there is if you wanted to start talking about changing wood policy or or even the conversation we've had previously about mash bills or grains or what have you, it would be to suggest that the they, Distillery X, were not doing distillery running uh, in a way that I see fit. So you'd almost by default be picking somebody you don't like. I think one that did kind of wander through my mind would be someone like Glenn Fiddock. One of the things we always say about Glenn Fiddock is when you taste their single cast samples, you go, holy shit, this, this distillery produces amazing liquid. But what do we think of? We all think of Glenfiddich 12. So it, that that part would be interesting to see what else is behind the scenes. Um, but even there, I wouldn't deem to change a thing. Mm. Okay, Jess looks like she has something she's got to get off her chest. It sounds like I need to take charge of Glenfiddich and keep it exactly the same to protect it from people like Jason coming in and meddling <laughs> with the way it all runs. It's famous for a reason. Uh, yeah, I think immediately I'd be like picking on a distillery who I think I don't necessarily enjoy their output and making it something that I do like. But then, like you say, what is the point in that? Why not just if it's if it's something that I don't particularly enjoy? There are several things. Largely, I think the three of us I haven't checked out Steve's palate against mine, but largely I think we agree on most whiskies. But yeah. you two definitely mm-hmm. have a couple of little funny ones that I do not agree on you with. Uh, and then when we have bottlings, they are more notable exceptions rather than distillery style. And it's just because it's a style I don't particularly think works on my palate. It doesn't even necessarily mean that it's uh, uh, one that I think is a bad distillery. It just doesn't work for me. So, yeah, I, I think maybe I also don't like Jason to back him up after we hung him out to dry there. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> want to assume that a distillery that I love the outturn from, I would be equipped or in a better place to come in and tell these guys, listen yeah. up, lads, this is what you need to do, because I know better. Because I definitely, I'm not claiming to know better than generations <laughs> of heritage in the in the industry, just because I like, you know, a particular style and maybe maturation pattern or whatever they're going yeah. through. It's a good question, though, because everybody has, and I'm sure the listeners who are uh, playing along at home will have an immediate answer as to who they're like, well, I would really like to take over Kilhoman, or I would absolutely whip Bowmore <laughs> up into a storm, or I'd you know, change everything about Ockintoshan to make it more how I want it to be. But 
that's also you can't change whiskey quickly this is a long-term investment like yeah me and yeah, jason yeah. when we've done our three-week possible work experience there's like you know 12 15 years for this to take effect and change and i don't have that kind of patience if i want to see change it needs to be now and <laughs> that's that's not how our industry works sadly yeah all right steve so I'm, oh sorry yeah, you not no, done? I was going to say, I'm going to remain on the fence. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer. She, yeah, she okay. totally dodged the question, if, we, if you guys picked up on that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think the spirit of the question was whiskey-related, house style-related, flavor profile-related. But the first thing that came into my mind was, you know, running a distilleries and the, <laughs> and the heartache that that actually uh, brings. So I guess to... to wonder about context is is this uh an opportunity for me to take over a distillery but everybody else is still there to do the work or am i <laughs> am i pulling the the two hairs left that i have out you know trying to trying to manage an operation i would, um, I would say that a la minecraft you could build your own world steve yeah what's it looking okay. like well, I think that you know, you put it in the way that I was thinking of, which is what kind of life do I want to have for myself, right? <laughs> so I think about, you know, wonderful, you know, exotic places like a distillery in Australia and how fun that would be. But in all transparency, I've never been to Australia, so maybe I'd hate it. But I don't think so. I think it looks real nice. Um, but I think it it's probably behooves me to to uh, consider American distilleries since you guys are all talking about scotch whiskey distilleries and America needs its time in the sun as well, um, which you don't have any of over there. I wondered there. if you were going to make this move, Steve. <laughs> so so yeah, then I, I didn't think even about... have time to consider that. Okay. Well, like yeah, I never see, considered maybe my it's... new favorite distilleries in Tasmania. Oh my, my yeah. mind is now melting yeah, that I could exactly. take over anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. You know, and I, I, think, of, I think of things like... Uh, Jason, you mentioned uh, Virginia Distillery Company, you know, the idea of sitting in a nice white wooden rocking chair on the porch of that place most of my days, pretty damn appealing. Um, and they, they make good whiskey. They're in, you know, the most interesting category of whiskey that exists right now. Um, they have a beautiful facility that, that isn't, you know, fallen down or, you know, hundreds of years old that you're constantly trying to fix things or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. um, that was a good point. you know, uh, Gareth, <laughs> Gareth would be great to work with, you know? So I think about all those things and what the life would be like and the opportunity to do interesting things. Mm -hmm. I think from a business standpoint, being, you know, on the Eastern seaboard is, is convenient. Um, I think the one challenge that I have is that I'm I'm pretty invested in the idea of sense of place and agriculture and stuff like that, and you're not getting a lot of great barley being grown in Virginia. So, um, you know, I think of a place like my good friend Murphy at Cedar Ridge in Iowa, and being able to run a facility that's not only a distillery but that's a winery and it's got a big farm and agricultural aspect to it. That's really cool. Same thing with the guys at Starlight, Ted. And, and his team at Starlight would be really cool. Mm -hmm. um, I think you get where I'm going. It's like I'm looking for this pastoral, you know, relaxing rocking chair type of existence in my in my older years here. <laughs> and those all sound those all sound really appealing. And they come with great facilities, and they come with most importantly people that know what the hell they're doing. I mean, I think we've, mm -hmm. you know, I think we managed to talk around the last question or the question before <laughs> Mike's fishing question, 
you know, and sound like we know what we're talking about, but none of us know how to make whiskey for real. <laughs> right. No, so it, to me, to me, it needs to come with some talent, um, because that's not going to be me. You, you got all, all, <laughs> all three of you are really taking this question far deeper than I, than I think Tom expected us to go. Well, Tom deserves for that. Me, he took the time to write in. He deserves a thoughtful answer. For me, it's, it's simple. I would have the Imperial Distillery rebuilt. I would have them go mm, back to, to doing yeah. the production that they had. Their spirit character was unique. Their production was consistent. And it was just excellent from top to bottom. And I would just let them go back to doing what they did. Period. End of story. His, his third is sort of add-on which I started to ask, but then we went down sort of these rabbit holes, was what would your signature expression be at the new distillery? And for me, it would be a 15, 16-year-old refill bourbon imperial, 46% alcohol, non-chill filtered, boom, done. Gorgeous whiskey. Don't want to muck about with it. There you go. go. That sounds like you're giving yourself plenty of time to take up fly fishing. (laughs) I like it. I hear the hooks are barbless. Yeah, you can join well, me I'm in, surprised. in Virginia. <laughs> right, well, I was going to say we could tempt Steve back to Scotland. I mean, he's painted. I hadn't gone as far as my, you know, outside of work life activities. We could draw Steve back in by, I mean, like Spay. The River Spay is incredibly yeah. famous for fly fishing. Yeah. There's a whole yeah. bunch of distilleries. You could just take over the one by one as you work your way up the, the river. Listen, uh, Tom closes this email out with a, a paragraph that I think is wonderful. And then, Jason, I'll hand it back to you because I know you've got a, a question in the hop here and it just says as always thank you for indulging me and taking the time to read through these questions i look forward to the next chapters of the fellowship between the two towers of scn and asc (laughs) and also eagerly await the return of the king of all whiskey festivals the jubilee Cheers and best wishes to you all. Regards, Tom Jadelka. So well done. So well done. Well done, Tom. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. That, that entire email was there and back again. Oh, very nice. <laughs> it was so precious. Uh, all right, so let's, precious. let's, let's, uh, here's an email that, that we've actually been sitting on for a little while, but I was I was waiting on Steve Hawley joining yeah, us, and yeah. and I know that our very dear Jessica Rabbit Lomas has something up our sleeve on this topic as well. So this this could get oh, this could get a little furry. Let's see what happens. It's from our very dear friend Holly Sidewalk. Can we be talking about furries? What? Uh, you you took it there. It's, uh, hey now, uh, hey now. Mine was merely rhetorical. <laughs> so Holly says, "I'm a bit behind, but finally had some free time and listened to your latest DTC episode. It really is great that you are both dedicated to keeping the conversation going on this, as it needs to be discussed over and over again. So thank you." I just wanted to make a note after hearing you mention a few times that I did not want DTC for brands slash producers. I may not have conveyed my feelings correctly, but I am extremely pro DTC for everyone. 
suppliers, distilleries, brands, and retailers. I want everything to open up and shake out how it needs to. I believe it was more Bikram and Antony that were concerned about it with them carrying more mainstream uh, brands. Uh, yeah. I know with experience that small brands need mini brand ambassadors and retailers hand selling and pushing their brands like us. Many DC based brands have approached us and already said they know they need more people advocating for them in this noisy market. I want brands and producers to have every possible outlet available to them to get product into the right hands. That would include DTC, distributors, ambassadors, retailers. They should be able to tap into all of it. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. I was quite shocked when I heard how you thought I felt and wanted to be sure to clarify. Open the doors. Wine, as you mentioned, showed us it works. Small, medium brands and retailers are thriving with a multifaceted model of DTC and support from the classic three-tier system. Hmm. She says, cheers, Holly. So uh, apologies to Holly if we misrepresented her in, in any of our conversations. Um, I'm so glad she wrote in to say, hey, I am DTC for all of this. And the fact that she, as a, a small, independently owned, independently focused retail store um, with some online presence is, is happy, happy to push forward for the world of DTC. But uh, Jess, before we hit record today, you were starting to suggest, and I'd love to get into the conversation a little bit more since DTC is so important, but I, I think given your background, you maybe see the role of the retailer more than most, or, or perhaps in your brand work with SCN, see the role of the brand more importantly than, than anything else. Can you, as, as Steve, I think incredibly articulately said earlier, could you put some leaves on the branches of, of how you feel about DTC? Oh, well, it is... Uh, I, d I don't know if my mic's going to pick this up. It is blowing a hooli, so the trees out here do not have many leaves on their branches. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about this. And as you said, um, many moons ago now, I was... I worked in retail, I worked in a shop, and so I have... I've done, I guess, both sides of it. Now in my job going to retailers to uh, sell our products to them, but having been the other side of that, being the person in a shop selling those products to the general public as they arrive in your store. Um, I mean, also, I, my caveat to this is working in retail is now quite a long time ago, but I don't, I don't think the fundamentals of it have changed. My concern <laughs> and what we were talking about just as we hit record is about brands who perhaps... Um, Ooh, how to put this, brands who particularly in the days when the whiskey world was not quite so fast moving and glamorous and flashy may have had products that 
uh, have sat on shelves and they needed retailers to be the ones being like, this is what we're championing. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely a mm-hmm. great bottle. Um, and according to what, you know, perhaps the question was, I've matched up a few things from some of the bottles behind me to be like, this is what I think you would like. And the idea that there is perhaps uh, a notion that comes to me that if you have got these brands that have usually and traditionally heavily relied upon retailers to spread the message, share the liquid, share the brand and the messaging that comes with it, who now are getting mega success and who are maybe moving towards DTC rather than going down the route of the retailer. Um, I know having spoken to you know retailers that there are some distilleries and some producers and bottlers who are you know really hot stuff and it's very difficult for uh, small shops who are not big chain who maybe don't have you know mega uh, multi-chain outlets um, opportunities so they can really be putting volumes of that stock through you know if they're people like Holly who's an independently owned and run store uh, to be uh, fighting against that and wanting to make sure that they've got an interesting and diverse selection so you when you walk in the shop it isn't just right. everybody's core range they're looking to get something so my point is if you're one of these brands who traditionally have relied on that model and now are seeing really big success and are like well we could go DTC and that would allow us to shorten that supply chain so we can put more product out we can move quicker we can put a you know a more changing selection out my fear is you're kind of cutting off the nose of the retailers who for x number of years have been doing the hard work of championing your brand putting you into Mm -hmm. tastings telling people when you come in hey drink this it's really delicious we love it uh so that is my fear without trying to name names, but you can all fill in the own gaps as you see. When we were talking to Susanna Skyver Barton, uh, famously, you know, the when we get bits of bourbon over here, people like, you know, Buffalo Trace's um, antique uh, collection and the Pappy is so hard to get here. I think that's a great example that's very well known that how do you make sure that people like Holly's store, like Good Spirits here in Glasgow, little, smaller, independent stores are getting a fair and equal access. And I think if you're mm. going DTC... You're, you're cutting out the chance for those guys to even get a foot in the door. So that's my kind of rambly answer. I, I think I'm, I remain <laughs> sceptical about some of the perceived advantages of DTC. On the other hand, there's a whole bunch of really great stuff. Being part of groups and uh, whiskey clubs and societies who are given access to stuff means I don't need to go in a store and stand and argue with people. If I've got an internet connection, I can be anywhere and have access. Uh, It means that I maybe I'm able to be, I hate this word, influenced. If I'm seeing some brands or somebody talking about it, I can go away immediately online and that instant response of clicks in the basket straight to the house rather than being like, okay, well, next time I'm in town, I'll remember to pop into that shop. I I can see it from both sides, but I just for what I do with Single Cast Nation, I hugely, hugely appreciate the support retailers offer us. And I think part of the industry is that kind of teamwork. And it's really important to me to see Mm -hmm. us supporting people who are supporting us back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I shall finish it there before I ramble for seven hours. (laughs) Uh, Steve, DTC? Yeah, I, I would I would build on what Jess is saying in that I think a lot of brands right now that are that are eager to get into DTC and proclaiming that it is their salvation 
um, don't really understand that you still need to put work into promoting your brand and put resources and, and dollars behind it. It's not field of dreams, right? You can't just <laughs> build a website and expect them to come. So yeah. I think there's some misconceptions out there that this business is just going to get easier overnight if you can do DTC. Uh, and I think that is, uh, like Jess was saying, a little short-sighted. There are people that are out there whether they be retailers, whether they be podcast hosts, whether they be um, anybody in the in the sphere of whiskey that has influence, uh, I think that those levers still need to be pulled. Whether you're selling it uh, at a retailer or or direct to consumer. Now, with that said, I think you guys all know where I stand on this. I think, uh, and this is very much a, a, a U.S. centric point of view because the U.S. is the biggest mess of them all. Um, <laughs> and we are working in a very antiquated system uh, that was yeah. built, you know, post prohibition, which was 100 years ago almost now, guys. So, um, you know, the world has changed. Consumers have changed. Consumer expectations have changed. Um, and I think that we need to meet the moment as an industry and, and change the way we do things. Um, I know that there's rhetoric on both sides uh, that can muddy the, the perception amongst consumers um, who, who, quite frankly, are not keeping up with the conversation the way we all are, but I think there are some there are some people that um, benefit greatly from the system that's in place now and don't want it to change. Um, but I also think those people have outsized power uh, when it comes to <clears throat> getting certain brands into the hands of consumers that might want them, uh, and I mm. think that does need to loosen up. I think that. You know, you guys have heard me, even in meetings over the last few months, make a very pointed point of saying e-commerce and not DTC. So direct-to-consumer, in my mind, is something a lot different than e-commerce. Um, <clears throat> I think that Holly, and it's weird to listen to Jason say Holly, because she says her name like my last name. And um, I did date in college a girl named Holly, and we knew that wasn't going to work. Um, <laughs> so um, Holly, Holly. Holly, Holly. Um, I think that them being able to get whiskey into the hands of people in an easier and more, and, and in a way that consumers increasingly expect is a necessary change. That doesn't change her sphere of influence though, right? That doesn't change her role in helping the people that follow her, that are customers of her, um, yeah. find their way to the whiskeys that she thinks are most interesting and most, mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. worthwhile. So. Um, you know, someone brought up wine as well. I think, I think it's ludicrous that we are held to a different set of rules than beer and wine, uh, when it yeah. comes to the yeah. world of whiskey. Right. And yeah. I think the arguments against the arguments for why that exists, you know, underage drinking and the strength of alcohol, I mean, <laughs> give me a break. Right. So I, nice. I think that things do need to loosen up. And I think that it's to the benefit of businesses, small and large. Uh, to be able to access more consumers, and it's absolutely beneficial to the consumer um, to be able to get these things in a different way. Mo most importantly, to get things, the, the, the wholesale tier of the three-tier system have so much control over what is offered to consumers mm -hmm. yeah. that 
you know, it's, it's quite frankly unfair, you know, that someone in, you know, Connecticut where Joshua is can't get, you know, Cole Keegan single malt because Colin can't get a distributor to give him any attention that far away from where he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of people in Connecticut that would love to get their hands on Cole Keegan single malt mm-hmm. because it's delicious. So self included, <laughs> yourself included. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, I just, I, I just think that something needs to change. And I think that some of the rhetoric again on both sides needs to be, you know, put away and we need to honestly think about, um, how this is going to happen. And it's kind of like the single malt thing where, um, one of the things that was most important to us in defining single malt from a regulatory standpoint in America was that it was done by distillers that made single malt it because of its popularity and because so many people were getting into it it's inevitable that it will have a definition so who's going to write that definition is it going to be the people that make it or is it going to be somebody else and i'll tell you what e-commerce i'll say and a subset of that being direct to consumer from manufacturers is inevitable it is taking a lot of time because there are people fighting against it and quite frankly there is no federal ban against direct to consumer. This is a state by state thing. So we have to untangle 50 different, um, sets of laws, uh, for this to finally open up. So it's going to take Mm. some time, but I think it's important that the people that are closest to this, and that includes the wholesale tier. I, I think it's important that we all figure this out together, uh, versus one interesting, one interested party that has a lot of power and might uh, solving it for everybody else, um, by sheer brute force. Um, it's, it's interesting that it kind of happened in Washington when the, the laws loosened up around (laughs) Washington state. Yeah. Washington state. I want to say 2008, 2009, uh, somewhere around there where, uh, it was a control state, uh, where the, where the state, uh, managed all liquor sales and it went private. But it went private in a way that wasn't necessarily great for everybody, but it was great for the <laughs> one, the one entity that, that uh, was driving that, which was Costco. I fear that e-commerce or DTC will, will succumb to the same fate in that someone, whether that be Amazon or somebody else, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for Amazon throwing its might behind um, you know, supporting a change in the system. But if we get to a situation where one large player gets to determine what the new rules are. Um, yeah. You know, that, that could pose a problem. So I guess all I'm saying is I'm making a plea to everybody in the industry to let's come together and solve this in a good way. That is, that is right for everybody because it's inevitable. It it has to happen. So let's, let's do it and do it right. Steve, can you quickly articulate the difference between e-commerce and D2C as it exists in your mind? Yeah, direct-to-consumer is what's happening mostly in wine right now, right? You can get, you know, um, Scribe Winery here in Sonoma to send you a bottle, and you can join their club, and you can be in Connecticut, I think. I don't know what their specific state-by-state laws (laughs) are, but... um, And the winery can make that bottle of wine and ship it right to your door, and you pay that winery... um, that's direct to consumer. E-commerce is where 
Um, we go through a retailer like Holly. So that goes through the existing three tier system to where a manufacturer sells it to a wholesaler, that wholesaler sells it to Holly and Holly can then sell it on her site to anybody across the country. Um, that's the difference. Gotcha. Gotcha. Unfortunately, right now she's only shipping within the state of New York, yeah. where first Phil Spirits resides. Yep. So, but but either scenario is one that w- that should allow for interstate shipping across all fifty states, whether it's yes e-commerce, which is the standard three-tier system, but you can ship mm-hmm. to all states, or DTC, direct to consumer, where you are the producer like yeah. a winery who can ship to, to all 50 states. Okay. Yeah, and I would like to see both. I mean, there's abs- yeah. in my mind, there's absolutely value that a retailer is bringing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, they need to continue to prove that value, but they need to do that in their real, you know, brick-and-mortar business as well. So um, mm-hmm. I, this is just another revenue stream from the, for them. So, yeah, I mean... We'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. It would be great if the federal government just says, all right, we're going to step in and, and make this, you know, make this legal. But that's not going to happen. This is, yeah. very, much a, this is very much a states' rights thing. I, I do believe that once California and New York, who are always, you know, thinking about these things and there are proposals being made in legislatures and stuff like that, I do believe that once California and New York, you know, pick a side of this question and hopefully it's the right side that that will probably start a domino effect of other states following suit. At least I hope that's what's going to happen. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, well, we'll be continuing to discuss it into season eight. So the, the issue is and nine, not and being 10, resolved anytime and soon. <laughs> <laughs> Only eight and then it'll be resolved and then we'll all just go on living our lives. Holly, or should I say Holly, Holly. I shouldn't say Holly, Holly. It's a different Holly. Uh, Thanks so much for for sending in that email and and clarifying your own position as well. I I just, I echo what Jason said before. If we've taken some of your statements and misconstrued them, that that is on us and we apologize and your clarification's fantastic. Um, Listen, there's actually, I don't really have any more questions, but there's two emails I wanted to bring to light. One of them's short. Checks out. One of them's a bit longer. Start with the short one, and this one's from, and and Jason, you may need to help me here because I have a feeling we've we've gone through this a few times. This one's from Matthew Welge, Welge, Welga. How do we spell it? W e l g e. I want to say like Welga, like it's kind of like German. Let's go with Ouija and give him the ultimate accolade. All right. Oh, Ouija. All right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, Jess is like, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I was, I was also thinking about how I would try to avoid offending someone with a tricky surname. <laughs> I would go for Welga. So math, Welga. Yeah, Welga sounds Welga. I like that. So hopefully he likes it too. Matthew <laughs> says, I'm so happy for all of you and the wonderful news. I wish you the best of luck and success for the future. Cheers, Matt. Beautiful. I just I, I think it's important to highlight he's got a podcast himself. It's called WTF Whiskey Tequila Fridays podcast. So uh, if those of you whiskey might be interested Fridays. in whiskey and tequila, give it a go. Um, so we received 
a, a tome, if you will, uh, from one Christopher Sebastian. And uh, the subject is much, much delayed email. And he says, Dear J, J, and J, and potentially S, question mark. To be upfront, I wish the listeners to know that, should this be read on the podcast, the delay is entirely due to myself <laughs> having meant to send it two months ago and, with no good reason, finally doing so on the 31st of January in the year of our Lord, 2024. It's quite the date. Yeah, that goes dude. beyond us putting month or day yeah, first. that's a whole different thing. We're really into 31st of January, the year of our Lord, 2024. And just, you know, just for argument's sake, I think it's uh, year 5780-something. So, <laughs> uh, in the year of Moshe. Um, so, so, it goes on, he says, With that being said, I will continue my email as if I had written it at the time of my original intent. <laughs> To help orient the context, I will give you the compliments on the episode that ha- I had originally meant to give. I thought the interview with Matt Johns of Pocono was incredible. He was delightfully geeky, really engaging, in a way that got you excited about his innovation. You could feel the enthusiasm. Just fantastic. Agreed. Awesome. Right? I'm yeah, very happy to hear that. Uh, Matt Johns was the very person I thought of when Steve was talking about going down there to open a distillery. So I'm glad Matt Johns get mentioned later. There you go. Good. He continues, I also wanted to comment on your conversation from the December 5th Extra Extra, and then in parentheses, rest in peace, on the article about bourbon not having the same excitement overseas. Uh, oh, boy. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Do I keep that in? how Joshua feels about that. Oh, man. <laughs> in that episode, I recall Joshua saying something about how certain craft distilleries just aren't trying to make it big and frequently are just content owning their own little backyard, so to speak. Uh, I'd be really interested to get Steve's perspective on this, but our experience at Blind Barrel is completely in lockstep with Joshua's thought. In our first two years, we partnered with 32 distilleries slash brands, uh, but engaged in conversations with over 300 other options. There is such a wide variance in goals out there. Regular, regularly, we would find a brand that we loved, but they would, have, they would have to tell us they just didn't have enough spirit to dedicate to some of our subscribers, acknowledging that they would need to take care of their local fans that have been with them from the start, which we absolutely respect. Some were even nervous about us making them blow up too much and wanting to continue to service Direct their good fire accounts. Direct fire still. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, good problems to have, to be sure, but just uh, shows that not everyone is just concerned about growth at all costs or shareholder value. But many of these brands are still mom and pop shops that just want to make good spirit and give something back to their local community. Fun to see. Before we go on to the to the last part of his email, um, you know, Steve is someone who works with two hundred and fifty different small single malt producers here in the U.S. Do, do you find the same? Is it 
those that are looking to, to service their local communities, maybe they've got a restaurant on site or a little hotel. And, you know, what, what do you see is, or are all 250 really hoping to, to make a bigger splash? Well, again, it's hard to paint everybody with the same brush, but yeah. I would argue that if you asked and they were being honest, most people want to be wildly successful, right? And <laughs> I think that there are, you know, those small few that are, you know, just happy to be turning the dials on a still and keeping the doors open and... Um, but what's your version of, of, of really successful? If, if their aim was to have a really nice distillery that got good foot traffic and they're able to give jobs back to the community and, and maybe carve a little, you know, spot out for them and their family, you know, it, that could be their own measure of success, right? Absolutely. I, I think there are those folks out there. Um, I don't think that that's the predominant, you know, um, ambition. Um, and it really depends when you get, I, I loathe the word craft, um, because it just, it's so wrought with misconceptions and mismeanings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you want to just say smaller operations, I think it depends on the situation. There are, there are people that have trained to do this, you know, their whole lives and they're trying to get something off the ground and they want to be, you know, wildly successful. I think that there are some that um, left another life behind to do this and need and want to be successful. And then I think there are a few that quite honestly don't need to be successful. They've done well in another field and this is their, this is their opportunity to do just what you're saying, Joshua, which is, you know, employ people and, you know, get to make something that they're proud of and, you know, support their local community and that kind of thing. But I think most people that I run into are really eager to make their mark on the world and, and put something mm -hmm. out that, that, that people go nuts about. And I mm -hmm. think that the reality is, you know, when we, when we listen to the email, I, th I think that there's, <clears throat> there's what they're telling you and then there's what they're really saying. Right. And I think, I think that a lot of, a lot of folks are a little wary of getting ahead of their skis, you know, and, um, sure. I think that there are people that are cautious when it comes to expansion because they also recognize a, the amount of work that that takes, right. It is, mm -hmm. A lot of these small distilleries are helmed by people that do everything. They make the whiskey, they do the accounting, they maybe have a few minutes to think about marketing and promotion, they handle the sourcing of raw materials, they manage the people that they do bring in to help out. It's, it is a lot. And I think mm -hmm. that a lot of people, rightfully so, are hesitant to expand too far too quickly. So I, I, yeah. I tip my cap to those people. I also think that you have a lot of bright people in this industry that understand that expansion and global domination doesn't necessarily mean profitable, <laughs> right? So <laughs> those things cost a lot of money in addition yeah. to taking a lot of effort and a lot of work. So, 
you know, you might see people, I guess my point is it's not from lack of ambition and it's not from, well, I just want to be a local mom and pop. It's from, you know, facing reality that this is a, a very difficult business to compete in. It is chock full of large consolidated spirits companies that, that run enormous brands that can outprice you and outfight you at retail. So, you know, sometimes the smartest move is to just play it small. And take a tidy little profit home and be, and be happy with that. But I would say that if you asked most of them, if we could make you a household name overnight and you'd make good money doing it, they would all say yes. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, fair. Just like they might bring Imperial back yeah, to life and release a 15, 16-year-old ex-bourbon mm-hmm. Imperial. I just feel bad for everybody at Delmenach. They're going to have to tear that entire distillery down just to rebuild Imperial. Um, and I love Delmenach. Anyway, uh, so let's let's go on to the third and sort of final part of, of Seabass's email. And this is where he touches on, Jason, the the last blind barrel sample that, that you and I tasted somewhat recently. He says, thirdly, loved your dissection of the black button sample. I have to admit, I was really interested to see how this would go since you've partnered with them for that delicious SCN bottling in the past. In tasting them regularly side by side, it's been interesting to see the difference yeast makes as well as cask strength versus the lower 42% ABV. Fellow Nation and Blind Barrels community member Kevin Dunlop, who we read one of his emails earlier... Uh, so both of them were actually discussing this during, he says, our live virtual blind barrels tasting in December when he was a bit let down by the palate of one of our offerings that he really loved on the nose. This particular bottling was an American single malt, unnamed as I might taste you on it in the future, but you might be able to guess. Um, and also not at cask proof, he says. Uh, bottled at 46% ABV. This seemed to resonate with your tasting experience of Black Button, really engaging with the nose, but then the desired more oomph on the palate. Kevin and I were surmising that as whiskey nerds who are so used to 50 plus percent ABV bottlings, we just have gotten used to that extra alcohol and those lower ABV bottlings just aren't for us so much as entry-level pours or to be used in cocktails. Uh, But really enjoyed hearing you break it down as always and excited for the next ones. Cheers and congrats on all you guys have accomplished in the early part of the year. I know I speak for the nation and looking forward to all you have planned for us. Chris Seabass. Uh, cheers, Seabass. Mm-hmm. Always appreciated. He's a good, good lad. Blind Barrel yeah. seems to be doing well also, so it's nice collaborating with them in the podcast. And, and I've got to say, you look at his signature, and his signature says Christopher Seabass Sebastian. So he's really <laughs> taken ownership of that. Leaning into it. Of that moniker. Yeah, he, he sure has. <laughs> Just think Steve's soon going to say Steve Creepy Crawly Holly. So that's going to be a <laughs> wild signature to see. <laughs> Just wait till you hear the final edit, Steve. You'll be you won't be able to escape creepy crawly. 
Mm. Well, this has been this has been really brilliant, Jess. You know, having you on the podcast is always a highlight. It's always a treat, Steve. Having you on here for your first time as as a co-host was was really nice, and I and I thought you brought a perspective to the table that that the three of us really couldn't have simply because of the life that you've lived. And so um, so it was really good to have you on here as well. That was a lot of fun. And, and Jason. And Jason is always. Thanks for classing it up, yeah, Steve. Well, I'm going to get each of you a black T-shirt for Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, yes. It's slimming, so I'll, I'll appreciate that. Um, so this is it. This has been our ultimate, our final episode of Season 7. And uh, with Season 8, I'm really excited for kicking it off. It's going to be with a, a long-standing whiskey company and, and some people that we think very highly of. So it's a, a good conversation that we had and a good conversation to be sharing. On that very subject, right. Joshua, right. Right. Um, I... I did have an email uh, right. queued up from John B. Corey Jr., but it's it's lengthy. It's got good girth to it, great heft. Right. We will uh, bring that back uh, episode one of season eight. So, so John B. Corey Jr., we loved your email, and we will be back with you at the start of season eight. I think you mean Sloop John B. Corey. Sloop? I don't know that one. Yeah, lost on me too, Joshua. Sorry. The Beach Boys, Sloop, Sloop John B. Sloop John B. What's Sloop John B.? Oh, my God. It's the, it's the Beach Boys. Wow. Yeah, I feel re- like you guys are, are not cultured. <laughs> Did you say who it is? The Beach Boys. <laughs> it's one of their Beach biggest hits. Boys. That's it. That's a, a band. Hit by the beat. Now, when you say one of their biggest hits, it's clearly not good vibrations. So, <laughs> how big is one of its biggest hits? <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm just gonna play this for you. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, we can't hear that. My grandfather. Yeah, and me. my favorite bit of this is that the three of us are still looking at you, going, "What the fuck is happening?" Because none of us can hear the music. You can't hear this? No. <laughs> Got into a fight. Oh boy! Oh, loving this. <laughs> loving this. So this is. Up. Good thing you're there. I wanna go home. Oh, I know that song, sure. Oh, I know that part. Yeah. That's Sloop John B. Yeah. Good thing that Joshua is the bass player the in his band. Sets. <laughs> Occasional Slapping vocals. Slapping a bass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, um, thanks to everybody who's written in. I uh, really appreciate all of your questions. We, Like Jason had said, he's got a question from Sloop John B., uh, for the next episode, we, we have more questions than we know. It's an embarrassment of questions, really. Uh, but we'll try to pepper them in as we go along through, uh, through season eight. And uh, until then, Jason, Jess, Steve, listeners, question askers, cheers to you all. Here's to our first seven seasons and, and to season eight yet to come. Cheers. 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 Cheers.